For the Love of Reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction. Read for you by Linda Pack. In the 1970s and 80s, the spiritual, questing, exodus of people fleeing from the cities and status quo and seeking something more, which was the signature of the Back to the Land generation. This created unique constellations of talent and energy in Mendocino County, made up of artists of every kind and description. Lenny Lacks, Bobby Markells, Antonia Lamb, Bonnie Sanger, and Chester Anderson were among those who lived here in this extraordinary place, in an extraordinary time. They all did many things with their lives, and they all wrote. And I knew them, and I loved them. And they all gave me much, and they left me something wonderful to read. So this is what I'm going to do now, for you, for them. In Memoriam Chester Anderson In the late 1960s, a science fiction novel entitled The Butterfly Kid became an underground sensation. It was passed hand to hand. I read a copy in New York. Um, someone thrust it on me and said, you must, you must. It was written and narrated by a character named Chester Anderson. In 1972, I moved to the town of Mendocino, and to my surprise, that very Chester Anderson, musician and magus, author and lead character of The Butterfly Kid, was an actual real person who lived in this surprising place. During the Summer of Love, Chester had been the moving spirit of the underground press in the Haight-Ashbury scene of San Francisco. He created the posters and flyers and screeds which promoted the free food programs of the diggers, and he composed and printed anything else that caught his imagination and attention. I didn't learn this backstory from Chester. He bragged about a lot of things. This was not particularly one of them. I learned this from his Wikipedia page. Chester Anderson has a Wikipedia page. He lives on. Here is the foreword and first few pages of Chester Anderson's most famous work, The Butterfly Kid, which was, and Chester did tell me this, and often, it was nominated for the most prestigious science fiction award available, the Hugo Award in 1968 for Best Novel. It was first published by Pyramid Books in 1967. Preface. I always feel vaguely cheated by first-person novels, wherein the name of the narrator is not the name of the author. This is irrational, but there it is. I never claimed to be particularly rational. Therefore, I made myself a character in this book, using my own real name with, of course, my permission. All other persons, all places, situations, and events are 100% fictitious. Would you believe 95%? And any resemblance to real persons, places, etc. is both coincidental and ridiculous. 
This is especially true of Greenwich Village, where most of this story happens. Do not be deceived. There is no Greenwich Village. Never was. Pure fiction, all of it. Ask anyone who's lived there. Chapter 1 The trouble with most warlocks is that they talk too much. That's how I happened to notice the kid in Washington Square. He wasn't saying anything. He just sat there, quietly making tropical butterflies, while the teeny boppers rippled past unnoticing. Okay, I thought, I'll play your silly game. I parked myself on the bench across the walk from his and elaborately ignored him, which wasn't all that easy. Those butterflies, I thought. They were vulgar butterflies, too big and too flashy, but good taste doesn't matter much in miracles, and anyhow, he'd learn. But I still couldn't see how he was doing it. He'd clench his fist, then open it, and off go another butterfly. Whatever he was doing, he was doing it very smoothly. The kid looked to be about two weeks late for a haircut, and his clothes were nearly clean. Check. But he was so fair, I couldn't tell whether or not he was growing a... Yep, he was growing a beard. When he turned to watch a particularly garish butterfly veer off towards Fifth Avenue, the new sun hit his face at just the right angle to show he'd recently quit shaving. He was obviously new to the village then, but he didn't look around to catch reactions to his butterfly routine, which was unusual. I was mildly fascinated. Finally, he reached into his shirt pocket, found nothing, and didn't bother to explore his other pockets. His face looked immaturely rueful. Right. I lit a cigarette as ostentatiously as possible and did not smile. Do you have another one of those? In a light tenor drawl. He was being casual so hard it almost glittered. Huh? The object was to keep him on the offensive, let him write the script. I was very curious about those butterflies. He said it again, more expressively, and conjured up a small gray moth. I said yes and held out my pack. He crossed the path and parked himself beside me, and the crowd remained the crowd. He tore the filter off the cigarette I gave him, but I forgave him for the sake of those lepidoptera. The kid had a problem. Every time he tried to strike a match, a red and yellow butterfly got in the way. After three butterflies, I shrugged my shoulders and gave him a light. Thanks, man. We sat there for a while. The butterflies got better, more imaginatively colored, and I nodded quiet approval at some of them. Just before he was ready to throw the cigarette butt away, I said, Pretty good butterflies. Yeah. He smiled a few watts and generated a large butterfly that had pretty good butterflies, gold on brown, printed across its wings. If the trick was still so new to him that he could openly admire it, I figured he must have learned it in the village, which would be interesting. Uh, how do you do it? I stressed the you a bit ever so gently, so he wouldn't think I was trying to steal his secret. Forestalling someone else's paranoia is a basic village survival technique. I don't know, he said, smiling mysteriously. I just 
Well, I... He closed his left hand and opened it to emit an iridescent green beauty with a pattern of crossed question marks in gold across its back. Pretty good for an amateur. And that was the very first pages of The Butterfly Kid by Chester Anderson. By the way, it is still in print, and it is available as an e-book from your very own Mendocino County Public Library. Chester dedicated The Butterfly Kid to Antonia Lamb. Antonia left her career as an astrologer to the stars in Los Angeles in 1971, and she came north to Mendocino in her Oldsmobile to live in a teepee with her two young children. She was quickly known far and wide as a gifted astrologer and psychic and a prolific singer-songwriter. But Antonia was also a professional photographer, a community and planetary activist, a radio personality, and an extraordinarily good editor and writer. Antonia was a Mendocino living legend. I try to stay real, she said. My goal is to have fun and live as if it mattered. And it mattered. And I will play one of her songs at the end of the program. In the late 1960s, when she was just a young mother living in New York City, in order to pay the bills, she wrote and sold four Gothic romance novels to Pyramid Books, which, whether by accident or design, is the same publisher who published Chester's Butterfly Kid. So here is an excerpt from one of those early potboilers. It is called The Greenhouse, and this is from Chapter 20. Desperate for a hiding place, I slipped from my shelter and sidled along the greenhouse wall toward the back. My foot caught an empty, stray flower pot and sent it spinning over the ground. It struck something in the area of the back central aisle. The sharp crack seemed louder than the pistol shot I'd heard before. A bright circle of light flashed over the central area and caught the shattered pot lying against an upended wheelbarrow. Close on the circle of light came another shot, and another, and then an angry shout, and I knew the chase was on. I felt along the wall that I was nearest to, hoping for a window catch or a door. The wall slanted, and suddenly there was an opening. I darted into it. Dim light filtered in from the unshielded glass in the roof, and I saw that I was in the left-hand wing of the greenhouse, the wing that housed my aunt's collection of toxic flora, the wing which had no door. I was trapped. I felt desperately along the waist-high tubs that lined the walls on either side and at the back. I was frightened of touching one of the plants that worked by direct contact, but even more frightened of my pursuers. I wanted a place to hide, any place. A low partition separated a grouping of long-stemmed shrubs from a low stand of fungi, mushrooms, and the like. I wrinkled my nose at the fetid odor, and using the concrete edge of their soil bed, I hoisted myself up onto the shrubbery. I prayed that they were only the oleanders. 
You had to eat part of those in order to be affected. As I crouched down behind the meager shelter of the half-foot space between the top of the tub and the soil, I hoped that the stems of the plant that shielded me were thick enough to deflect light. Voices and footsteps. Light flashed over my head. A stray beam of light touched my cheek and then was gone. Voices consulted. One of the men strolled down the broad aisle of my aunt's collection room, swinging his flashlight into corners and under the low legs of the tubs. I thanked Providence for having given him a lazy disposition. He approached the section where I crouched with my cheek against the soil, barely daring to breathe, and I heard him grunt sharply. Then he sneezed and made a noise of disgust, sniffing as if something offended him. And he passed on. I saw the beam of his light poking into the corners of the room, and then he was gone. I was safe, for the time being, at least. You've just heard a scene from The Greenhouse by Antonia Lamb. Bonnie Sanger. Bonnie was a wise woman in the ancient and venerable meaning of the phrase, She was one of the most generous and open-hearted people I ever had the privilege of knowing. Bonnie was a giver, not a taker, and she had a tremendous capacity for fun and making things beautiful. I'll let Bonnie tell her own backstory. Here is an excerpt from her self-published memoir, Conversations with Grandmother Redwood. In the early 70s, I was struggling to escape the prison I had constructed for myself. I was a single mother with my daughter, Kelly, 18, still at home, and I worked as a secretary shuffling papers in a 30-story building in downtown Oakland for a huge corporation, commuting from my home in semi-rural Walnut Creek, putting in too many hours for too little pay to quite cover our expenses. I was so drained from the maddening commute, the uncertainties of my job, and the job market in general, the stress, the anxiety, the struggle to pay the rent, that when I got the chance to be laid off, I took it and never went back. Couldn't drive that commute one more day. Kelly and I talked it over and agreed that what we wanted was to just get out of the Bay Area altogether. So the next weekend, we set off with our sleeping bags, cots and cooler, camp stove and lantern, and went looking. We found Usol. Our entry that first day is indelibly imprinted in full color in my memory. We had just driven onto the cattle guard at the entrance when I saw a fawn in the bushes by the side of the road, staring at us without a move. I stopped immediately and looked directly into her unalarmed, alert brown eyes. Just for a few brief seconds, she was only five feet away from us. She seemed to feel no fear, only curiosity. Nobody moved for a long time. She had examined our hearts and given her permission for us to enter. Eventually she turned and slowly wove herself back into the forest. Finally, we remembered to breathe. 
Usol has given me many such moments, but that first time removed most of my fears about our future. It was a holy place. Anyone could tell that. I knew we'd be all right there. Even though there had once been a town there long ago, complete with a hotel, saloons, a mill, quite a few homes, there was little or no sign of that previous life by the time we got to Usol in 1973. Lovely reminders of previous residents were the jonquils planted around the now non-existent homes, whose shapes were still outlined by the bright gold of blossoms each spring. My four years living in my tent in Usol gave me many riches that I could never adequately measure. It is the gift of my friendship with Grandmother Redwood that I wish to tell you about now. Of all the treasures I received from Usol, Grandmother Redwood is my most loved. She taught me, and continues to teach me, that which I am most hungry to learn. Here follows a record I began to keep of all our talks together. I always bring paper and pen with me when I visit, in case she will speak. I don't want to forget any of it. Autumn, 1978 the first time I remember really seeing you, Grandmother, it was summer in Usol three or four years ago. I was living alone in my tent under the alders by the creek that runs through the daisy meadow, and I saw you above the road that had been cut through beside you. Because the earth had eroded over the years, your roots had been exposed on that side. I could tell you'd been cut down long ago because your saplings were almost a foot across— there was a lovely wild elderberry growing out of your side, and you were covered with ferns. Something about you drew me. The blackberries made it hard to reach you. Although I felt foolish as I stealthily looked around to be sure there was no one in sight, I still was compelled to lean against you with my arms stretched out around you. I wanted to sink into you. I pressed one ear tight against your side and covered my other ear and listened. I made myself very still. After a lingering silence, I seemed to hear a long, slow sigh floating up from deep within you. It was infinitely weary, infinitely patient, infinitely ancient, that sigh. It was dark in there dark with time and waiting and calm endurance. Then I was filled with a gentle current of kindness that flowed down from you to cover me. I rested gratefully in your kindness. No words, but I knew we would speak together one day. And that was an excerpt from Bonnie Sanger's memoir, Conversations with Grandmother Redwood. And now here is a true story written by me, starring both of my friends, Bonnie and Antonia. I call this The Red Shoes, an environmental art piece. For a few years now, my friend Antonia and I have taken a walk together as often as we could after I was done with work each day. 
Our walk takes us around the top of the Mendocino Headlands, a state park that wraps around the village of Mendocino. On the middle stretch, we pass behind the playing fields of the high school, and it was there that we noticed the roof. The roof was lying on the ground. It looked almost as though the rest of the house was still underground. The roof pushed out through the soil like a mushroom after a rain. Maybe it had been on an old dugout, or it had just been tossed aside when the baseball field had been renovated. But there it sat, stranded behind the soccer field. And one day in late spring, it occurred to me that what that roof really needed was a pair of red shoes poking out the front. So I said to Antonia, what that roof needs is a pair of red shoes poking out the front. Yes, indeed, she replied. It certainly does. Antonia is very quick on the uptake. The next time we walked past, I said to Antonia, Do you think Bonnie would like to assist us in making the red shoes for the roof? Let's ask her and see, suggested Antonia, who has many useful suggestions. So we took a picture of the roof to bring to Bonnie, who lives a half an hour inland and was uh, likely unacquainted with the site. After a lovely snack at Bonnie's house, we showed her the picture and explained the project. I would be delighted, declared Bonnie, and so we started. The first thing we did was to buy some possible pairs of shoes from our local thrift shop. We decided it would be best to prepare two pairs, since we had no way of knowing what might happen to the first pair after installation. It might rain. Critters might find them. Someone might steal them or vandalize them. After all, it was right behind the high school and in the middle of a frolf course. Now, you may not know what frolf is, but it is a good thing to know. Frolf is frisbee golf, and the holes are metal posts with chains attached in such a way that the frisbees can slot into them. There are a bunch of folks using our local course, which is roughly around the perimeter of the playing fields. So we set out to prepare the shoes for decorating. After some consideration, one afternoon at my house, Antonia and I decided that spray paint would be the most efficient way to get them very red very quickly, and that perching them on stakes in the garden would be the best way to let them dry. My cat enjoyed that rather a lot. A few weeks later, we took the two pairs of now extremely bright and shiny red shoes over to Bonnie's house for decoration. With black glitter and a string of graduated sparkly red beads and rhinestones and black lace, we created one pointy-toed pair. With red foil ribbon and gold rosettes, we made huge bows for the square-toed pair. Each got feet of black stockings stuffed with newspapers and a lovely coordinating ankle bracelet. We chose the pointy-toe pair for installation and set the date. On Sunday, August 1st, 2004, we met at the site at 11 a.m. It was overcast and breezy. After some attempts to secure them to the rock-hard earth by pounding bamboo stakes through the heels of the socks, Antonia pulled out some 20-penny nails and just banged the suckers in. They looked fantastic, exactly right from all angles. We agreed that now, we had to officially give up any control over the destiny of the shoes. 
No fixing allowed, no matter what fate may befall them. Also, no advertising. Let them be discovered or not. It was okay to take lovely, healthful strolls with unsuspecting friends and pause there, perhaps to stretch or to tie one's shoes or admire the view. And if the friends should notice them and exclaim with delight, Who would have thought of this? Who would have done such a fine and silly thing? It was okay to admit our authorship. And in fact, we all did do this. It was hard not to visit the shoes. I looked forward to them on each walk and was filled with trepidation each time I approached the roof in fear that they might be gone. But then relief would flood over me when I saw that they were still there. They gave such satisfaction. One day, about two and a half weeks after the installation, I came upon the shoes in wild disarray. They were on the other side of the roof peak, held in place by a loose board, and much of the decoration had come off and was scattered around the area. I rushed home to the phone and reported to Bonnie and Antonia. After studying the situation carefully and using detective reasoning in my best Sherlock Holmesian manner, this is what I think happened. Someone was walking their dog, and the dog got away from that person and attacked the shoes. The person, horrified, did their best to repair the damage and replace them as well as possible. What I saw was the attempt to recreate the piece as it was before it had been so rudely disturbed. It was touching, actually. The next day I rushed to document the new arrangement. About a week later, I took someone to see the shoes. But they were not there. The roof was not there. The site was empty, except for a strand or two of beads and one rhinestone glittering in the dry grass. Twenty feet away was a burn pile. Probably the school was cleaning up before the return of the students the next week. The roof was on the pile. We don't know what happened to the shoes. Maybe three weeks later, Antonia and I took our walk. As we approached the place where the roof had been, we saw a man standing there. He watched us as we came toward him, and then he said, Are you the ladies who put the red shoes under the roof? We said we were. That was great, he said. Me and the froth guys got a big kick out of it. We still have the other pair of red shoes. We are keeping our eyes open for an appropriate roof. Here is a story by Lenny Lax. Lenny was a professional rock and roll guy who somehow ended up in Mendocino, where he made a lot of music and a lot of friends. In the mid-1960s, he was the lead singer for the New York-based Hamilton Face Band. He recorded for Mercury Records and for Bell Records, and then he moved to L.A. and was a staff writer for United Artists. On his website, Lenny wrote, Basically, I am a songwriter. It's mostly R&B, but I got a lot of white in me. I am a Bronx boy, way back in New York, and I grew up on early rock and roll. Came to California in the late 60s, couldn't do L.A. So I moved north to a little town called Mendocino. Nice place to live. Please don't move here. 
I'll play one of Lenny's tunes at the end of the show. A few years ago, Lenny asked me if I'd like to read some of the stories he was writing. I said, sure. I'm glad he asked. Most of Lenny's stories are about his life in showbiz, in New York and Memphis and L.A. in the 60s and 70s. This one is my favorite. It is called Kugel and the 200 Strats. The dog's name was Kugel, a Jewish pudding-like dish. And the human was Johannan Vigoda, a semi-enlightened megalomaniac music business lawyer, a potentially toxic combination to anybody's career, for better or worse, usually better. He was of the opinion that his ears were infallible and that he knew what music was good and what was garbage. If he liked your music, he loved you and your music. You were one of his people, and that made you worthy of his almost maniacal war against those who would not hear. A little side story. We went to his office to sign our contracts, and as usual, he was on the phone. The conversation was heated, and the back and forth was like super phone tennis. And Johannan was so nervous and type A that he would rip a small wad of paper, ball it up, and chew it, washing it down with a sip of vodka while we watched. This goes on for almost an hour, leaving us bewildered but amused. It was funny. Now signing time is upon us, and with a drinker's slur, he burps and pets the dog and reaches over for the contracts, noticing that it starts with page four. What the is going on with these papers? Where are the first three pages? There is a weird silence. Ronnie, the guitar player, is laughing, and he blurts out, You ate them, Johannan, and the room dissolves in laughing. He ate the first three pages. Really? In his office on 57th Street in New York City, Columbus Circle, arguably the business center of the music world. He ate the contracts while his dog sat side the desk on the sixth floor. And there are no dogs allowed. So we take a cab down to the 8th Street in the village, where we were more in our element between being beats and hippies. In the 60s, it didn't matter much. Nothing really mattered much. As the song goes, ain't got nothing, got nothing to lose. We had a place to rehearse, a manager, and a place to play in public. Life was good. We were a rock and roll band with a recording contract and a little adult supervision. We had Vigoda from 57th Street with the dog, Kugel. I think he made new copies of pages one through three. Now, the story. Another of Johannan's clients, a guy named Greenberg, who ran a nightclub named Generation on 8th Street. And we were almost lucky, because somehow we were able to use it as a soundstage to work on our show, a very valuable ticket in New York. As it worked out, we did not get to use it much. There always seemed to be a lot of commotion and side issues. Hey, don't put that over there. Something else was going on, definitely. 
One evening, walking down the long, slow ramp that led to the stage, Ronnie, the guitar player, stops and points to some strangely shaped cardboard boxes alongside the wall, stacked like bricks. So we walk over to see what it is. The first box is open. And you know how sometimes you can look right at something, and if it is outside your normal visual experience, and it takes a minute or so for you to grok, what we have is approximately 200 white Fender Stratocasters strung left-handed, box after box. Soon after, the word's out. The world loses the club generation and gains Electric Ladies Studio. New owner, Jimi Hendrix. In the memory of my mind's eye, I can see the boxes all in a row, corrugated, colorless, and Kugel, the dog, waiting all this time for someone to let him out, go for a whiz. Good dog. Johannen quit drinking alcohol several years later in California. Good Johannen. That was Kugel and the 200 Strats, an unpublished story by Lenny Lacks. Bobby Markell's. Bobby Markell's moved to Mendocino in 1966 with her two kids escaping the big city life of San Francisco. Does this sound familiar? She wrote and she self-published and she performed in hilarious and touching one-woman shows of her material. She also founded, along with six other motivated local women, the Mendocino Coast Children's Fund. Together, Bobby said, all of us got started and going and successful. The fund raises money for children on the coast whose needs fall between the cracks of existing programs. So I thought about that when I knew that I wanted to read one of Bobby's pieces. And I realized that when I wanted to read a Dorothy Parker short story on the air last year, in order to secure the rights, I was directed to pay a royalty of $50 to the NAACP. Dorothy Parker was a firm believer in civil rights, and she bequeathed her literary estate for the continuation of this good work. So in this tradition, I have just donated $50 to the Mendocino Coast Children's Fund. You could too. Their address is P.O. Box 1616, Mendocino, California, 95460, 1616, Mendocino. And as long as your checkbook is out and your heart is in the right place, you might send a check to this, your very own public radio station, KZYX. The address is P.O. Box 1, Philo, California, 95466. P.O. Box 1 for KZYX, Philo. Bobby would love that. Here, from Bobby's Mendocino Malady, which is a collage of her prose, poems, and diaries, this is Bobby's short story, Like a Flower 
like a fire. Come on, come on, come on, Popper said. You women. Popper always said, you women. Okay, Dolly, Mama said. Look, I put two handkerchiefs in here. One extra. Use a different one each time. See? One extra. Mama always told you something two times. Okay, goodbye. Mama gave her a kiss. It always felt very soft when you hugged Mama. And listen, Noni, be sure and comb your hair before you go in to eat with your Uncle Popper. All right, Popper said. Women, talk, talk. Mama followed them down the hall. Listen, she bent over low. You remember to wipe yourself, don't you? Oh, Mama. Mama always told you things you knew. One time they were in the toilet at the movie, and when Caroline came out, Mama said, Did you wipe yourself? To Caroline. Goodbye, goodbye. Popper grabbed his hat off the statue lady and kissed Mama on the cheek. Goodbye, goodbye. She reached up to Mama and kissed her one more time. Goodbye, Dolly. When you went downstairs, you could count names like Mama. Caroline, Popper, Bessie, Nonni. So what's new? Come on, move your feet. I'll tell you a funny thing. Susie never wipes herself. Is that a fact? Well, I'm very glad you told me that. Popper was always very glad when you told him something. Is that cab for us? Are we going to take a cab just to 51st Street? No. And oh, no. Say, don't you know there's a depression? Come on, move it. Oh, you're kidding me. Would I kid you? He pushed her in front of him, his heavy hand guarding her shoulder. Come on, get in. I'll tell you another funny thing. She settled back against the cab cushions. Susie's brother doesn't even wipe himself. You don't say. Well, I'm certainly glad you told me that. What would I have done without that little secret? Say, what's this? You've got a purse now, eh? Oh, sure. I got it from Caroline. Look, I have two dimes. Two dimes? You better hide them. I just told you. There's a depression. Say, what's a depression anyway? Beats me. You got me, pal. You think he'll make it? The cabman said. Why, sure, it's in the bag. I'll tell you another funny... Okay, close it. When you sat in a cab with Popper and he was talking to the cabman, you didn't say anything. Like in the winter, she and Caroline would get all dressed up and go out for dinner with Popper. Remember to eat nicely, Mama would say. They'd put on their Sunday coats and hats and good patent leather shoes and be already waiting for Popper. Where should we go, ladies? Popper'd say, standing on the curb. And they'd giggle, oh, wherever you want. It was very important to go out to dinner with Popper. No one had to tell you to eat nice. When you went with Popper to a nice restaurant, didn't Mama think you knew how to eat? They'd walk through the big lobbies of the hotels, Popper holding their hands, and they'd stop to look at the windows of the lobby stores. 
Popper would watch the clothes and squint up his eyes. Well, I don't know, he'd say, rubbing his chin. This one is nice. They'd walk through the restaurant, past the waiters, hurrying back and forth, and carrying big trays and swords with fires and food on top. Oh, yes, Mr. Schatz, the man would say, and Popper would push them in front of him. They'd walk very carefully down the restaurant. Not like you walked in the park, very quietly. You never stopped to ask people what they were eating. You never yelled in a restaurant. You never put your thumb in your plate. You said thank you when the waiter put your plate down. Sometimes there was a floor show and the lights would go out. Then Popper would take turns dancing with them. Nothing was so exciting as getting up to dance with Popper in a restaurant, going through the aisle holding Popper's hand. The da da di dum. Oh, you're a very good dancer. No kidding. It's a real pleasure. I hope you're right, the cabman said. You really think he'll make it? It's in the old caboodle. Here, 51st is okay. Who will make what? President. Popper picked up their stuff. Here, hold this. He put a box in her hand. Come on, come on. President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Popper slammed the door to the cab. Who's he? It felt good to hold Popper's hand. We'll see, we'll see. Maybe he's the man. Popper looked up at the big station clock. Come on, move your fanny. What man? They started walking fast through the big doors, past all the candy in the glass windows. You couldn't even stop to count squares in the floor when Popper walked like that, past benches with people waiting, down the steps. You couldn't even count names when Popper went that fast, right into the train, waiting for them on the tracks. Popper pushed her ahead. Okay, sit down. What man? Roosevelt? That's the man, Popper poked the man in front of them, who's going to save America. Say, wake up, you jerk. The man in front turned around. Augustus, you son of a gun, he said, and Popper laughed. When you sat on a train, you could look out the window and see the world. One time on the train, when she said, what will I do? Popper said, why don't you open your eyes and look at the world? So if you were sitting on a train, you could do it. You could look out and see the buildings pass. You could see the sky moving by and the clouds. You could see the whole south side pass, all the buildings sticking out and the parks between, and you could see the lake on the other side. How big is the lake? She turned to Popper, but he wasn't there. She stood in the aisle yelling, Popper, and started to scream. Jumping up from the seat in front, he was right there at her side. I was just talking, he held her head against his hip. What's wrong with you? I thought you were gone, she wailed into his pocket. Isn't that silly? He sat in the seat and pushed her alongside of him. You women, I'm always here. You know that and she settled herself against his stomach and closed her eyes. Popper was always there. Say, did you see that bird? What bird? Why, the bird that flew in my pocket. You're kidding. What bird? 
Would I kid you? Didn't you see that bird? She tugged at his pocket. A Hershey bar. No kidding, Papa raised his eyebrows. How did that get there? Oh, you knew you had it. I did not. I am amazed, absolutely amazed, in my pocket. Imagine. I'll tell you a funny thing. Susie's mother wears an apron just like a maid. Is that a fact? Now thank you for that fascinating tidbit. That makes my day, that bit of news. Popper took out his notebook and pencil. An apron, eh? You never know when these little items will come in handy. Now don't kid me. Okay, I won't kid you, big shot. So what's new in the world? Any stocks? Any bonds? How's your blood pressure? But if you really wanted him to be serious, you could count on Popper. Anything you wanted to know, all you had to do was save it up for Popper. I was saving to ask you, how did it begin that men wear pants and women wear skirts? Would they still be men? I mean, how did it get that way? How come a woman has long hair, for instance, and a man has short? Well, long hair is feminine, ladylike. What do you mean, ladylike? That's what a woman should be, ladylike. That's why they have long hair. Well, what if you thought short hair was ladylike, or bald even? Who said so in the first place? Well, I just don't know, Papa raised his eyebrows. It is a baffling problem, very baffling. He tugged at his ear. Can't figure it out. We'll have to ask Einstein. Who's Einstein? Oh, he's a scientist. What's a scientist? Come on, you know what a scientist is. No kidding, what's a scientist? You are inexhaustible, absolutely inexhaustible. What's inexhaustible? You. You see this nickel? Now you don't see it. She grabbed his hand. But where? It was right there. He held his arm out straight. The nickel came back in his thumb. She jumped up. It was gone. Popper, where'd it go? I don't know. He pulled at his ear. Well, I'll be a horse's monkey. Where did this nickel come from? Oh, you were kidding. I'll tell you another one I was wondering. How about the names of things? For instance, how do you really know what time it is? I mean, just because it says five o'clock on the clocks, how do you know it's really that time? What if all the clocks were all wrong at the same time, and they all said four instead of five, but it really was five? How could anyone know the real time? Like in directions, how do you know when they say east is east and west is west? What if they named east west? I'll tell you. Popper looked out the window and scraped his teeth with his nail. See that clock down there? It says three o'clock, right? And my watch says three o'clock. Now you know my watch is always right. You just remember to always go wind that clock and you will always know what time it is. I don't get it. Either do I. Don't worry. Einstein will take care of it. Oh, he's a scientist. That's right. You're right. And I'll tell you a new game. It's called Shut Up 
See how long you can play it. Okay. When you were on a train, if you weren't looking at the world or talking to Popper, you could always fall asleep on his stomach. It was a good thing to do on a train. You women, Popper said. Smell that country air, Popper pounded his chest. There's nothing like the country. At night, you could catch fireflies outside and hold them in your hand and then let them go. Or you could sit on the club porch playing cards with the kids. Old maid, war, fish. That's not fair. Is cheating allowed or isn't it? Okay, then cheating is allowed. Well, then let's make up the rules for cheating if it's allowed. All right, you can only cheat two times in one hand. Otherwise, it isn't fair. They walked down the street later, looking in the little town's windows. Oh, Popper dug his hands in his pockets. Smell that country air. Good old country. You could walk down the street, face up, looking at the night. You could look up and see the stars in the sky. The sky was darker in the country, and you could see more stars. There were hundreds and hundreds of stars, like the sky was black-dotted Swiss. Fill your schnozola. Popper stopped walking and looked up at the sky, too, with his head way back and took a deep sniff through his nose. It's a wonderful world, Popper said. A wonderful world. And that was Like a Flower, Like a Fire by Bobby Markels. For my friends, Chester and Antonia and Bonnie and Lenny and Bobby, this edition of For the Love of Reading in Memoriam. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, edited, and performed by Linda Pack. The program was engineered by Alicia Bales. This program is archived and available for online listening at kzyx.org along with all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading. As promised. Tunes by Antonia Lamb and Lenny Lax. First, written, played, and sung by Antonia from her album Easy to Love Her, Everything Changes, followed by Ring Around the Sun, sung, played, and written by Lenny from his album of the same name. When your life is coming fast Lost in emotion I might have forgotten 
To fill in all the spaces between Starting and stopping, but you know The things I didn't say, you know The way it is today As soon as you think of something to say Everything changes and the room fades away I have just discovered that it's all right to be tender Something I'd forgotten that's so easy to remember Any more that I could say would just be words to get through You make me want to sing, that's all that I can tell you But you know, the things I didn't say, you know The way it is today, as soon as you think of something to say Everything changes and the room fades away Tomorrow, 
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.